Satan knows that and wants nothing more than to destroy it in the church. Isn't that true? He would love to see disunity. If he can't scare the bejeebies out of us and destroy it from the outside, he's going to try to destroy unity from the inside. And what he'll do is plant deception and he'll plant people who appear as angels of light within a congregation and seed um, discord within a congregation. One of the reasons I think Satan loves to interrupt unity within a church is because he knows the power that it has, the effect that it has even on a community. In John 17, it says one of the ways that people come to Christ is by seeing how a church treats its own. As it sees the love between believers, Jesus prayed, then they will know that you have sent me. It has great power, unity does. We read about it here in Acts 4, if you'll turn to it, and then stand. Let's take a look at our passage. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're going to ask for your mortgages and the titles to your cars after the service. Don't get nervous. Father, it indeed is a challenging passage, one in which we wonder how this applies to us today. I pray that you'll give us discernments. But even more than that, you'd give us hearts that would follow the movement of your spirit. Lord, we're not interested in contrived, forced ways of doing things. We're interested in giving your spirit freedom to move in our lives and we respond accordingly. And so I ask that you'll move in a powerful way in each of us that we would be able to take our time, treasure, and talent and operate freely and joyfully in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You know that uh, the passage in up to now in Acts gives us a couple different descriptors of like 3,000 and 5,000 that came to know Christ. And we know that from history they were just counting the men. So if you include the, the, the women and the children, estimates are anywhere from about 10,000 to 20,000 believers are in Jerusalem at this time. That's kind of staggering then when you consider when our passage says these Christians were of one heart and one soul. Think of that. One heart, one soul. In other words, they agreed on the things that were important in their lives, and their lives were consistent with that. 
And when the scripture speaks of, of a heart, what it refers to is what comprises the will. So these people thought and freely made decisions that were centered around something that united them as believers in Jesus Christ. Well, what was that? Well, first, let's make a note of what unity is not. Can we do that? Unity is not everyone being a part of the same denomination. We know that can't be the case because there were no denominations here in Acts 4. But he says they were unified. Secondly, unity is not everybody being a part of the same church organization or having services together at one time. There were literally at least 10,000, thousands of believers in the city, and we know that they did not have a place that they met all together, that they met in homes, they met pretty much wherever they could, but they were spread out in, in smaller groups. And yet I'm sure the apostles had somebody come up to them and would say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could just have one service together, have everybody, not have these multiple services, everybody together, so we can get to know everybody, as if one service would let you get to know 15,000 people. But people think that anyway. It's not going to happen. We also know this, that unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is not the absence of confrontation. What I love about the book of Acts is that it is a historical account of the early church, and it includes the blemishes. It is not seen through rose-colored glasses. For instance, the church had a difficult time coming together on how the Old Testament was to be applied in now this thing called the church. And so the leaders had to get together and they created what was called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We're about three years from that still, from getting to Acts 15, but we'll get there eventually. And they agreed on how this, what this was to look like, and then they wrote a letter to the churches and said, well, this is what we think about this. Uh, you might remember that Paul and Barnabas were going out on a mission trip, and they couldn't agree on who to hire. And there was a, a, a disagreement. Well, they came together later and agreed on it, but... There was a problem. We know that the church was continually attacked from religious leaders, from political leaders. There were issues. There were problems. There were rough waters ahead. In fact, I would say that what we're reading about here in Acts 4, this was the honeymoon. You know, uh, persecution has not been ramped up quite yet. Just beginning to start, but heads were literally going to roll. Just hadn't started yet. We could say this too, that, that unity is not a feeling. As much as we might enjoy holding hands, singing kumbaya, that's not the essence of what unity is. Actually, I don't enjoy that, but some people do. But <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> um, unity, we could, if we had to define it, we could say this, that unity is mutual submission to the headship of Christ and his word. And that that 
that is expressed in sacrificial love to one another. It results in sacrificial love. Mutual submission, everybody submits to Christ and his word, and it results in sacrificial love toward one another. We read this in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here, obviously, unity is connected to the knowledge, to the relationship to Christ and One of the fruits is maturity that happens as a result. We could say it this way. Discord in the church blunts the growth. It shuts down the growth of the body. Discord. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is out of Colossians. Unity is not static. It's it's the reality of what we have in Christ fleshed out in loving relationships, in forgiveness, it says, in healthy relationships. Well, now listen, if forgiveness is there, what does that imply? There are things that have to be forgiven. Right? In other words, unity is messy. It's not this clean thing of everybody agrees and everybody's on the same page with every jot and tittle. No, it is messy. There are things to work out. There are things to forgive. That's a part of it. It is hard. It is not the absence of conflicts. It's the presence of forgiveness. John 17, Jesus' words, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, unity serves as a testimony of the the life of Christ in his church. Nothing contradicts our identity as Christians more than Christians becoming demanding of something like programs or, you know, politics or personal agendas. And then people have this kind of party spirit that becomes entrenched around some program or something. And then people throw a little hissy because they don't get their way. If you're taking notes, write that down. Hissy, don't throw a hissy, all right? It's in the Greek there. (laughs) This party spirit. And and then, you know, you have your friends that get upset about something. And so, you know, you like create your own little union over here with your friend who gets upset. And and that's how it happens. It's party spirits begin to become involved in the church. Listen, when there is a mutual submission to Christ and his word, all other agendas take a back seat, right? You know what? Maybe your idea will not win the day. 
Maybe your pet program will not get picked up. And the fact is, this is not my church, this is not your church, this is Christ's church, and he's the head. And in order for any organization to function, there has to be leadership, there has to be a head, right? I mean, it would be impossible for every idea to fly. Can you imagine having a church of hundreds of people like we have, or a church of thousands? Everybody think, well, you know, they, I gave this idea, and they didn't go with it, obviously. I must not think I'm important. And people get upset. You can't possibly do every idea. I can't even get every idea I propose at home to go, and I'm only dealing with one other person. You add hundreds of that. And it's not because my wife is irascible. It's because I think God has given us the conflict, has given us the, 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 the pushback for a reason. Number one, it humbles us, right? Number two, it gives us an opportunity to truly practice unity because we realize there are things more important than my thing, my whatever I'm trying to get across, right? Listen, if everybody agreed on everything, that's uniformity. Unity is all the diversity, all the differences, we still come under one banner. We're still going we're, we're gonna to accomplish one mission. There are things more important than just my agendas. Not that it's unimportant. Not that we don't want to listen to ideas, we don't want to start programs, but not everything fits or not everything has, uh, is to be done in that season. I like what Paul says in Romans. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Clearly, unity has a relational aspect. But here's another. Unity, listen, it's also doctrinal. It is doctrinal. Now, this is an area that is askewed in our culture. And even within the evangelical church or whatever church you want to call, whatever group you associate with, they decry claims of truth as arrogant, as too exclusive. And, and, and so you have a whole group that kind of cozies up to tolerance, all the while hypocritically, hatefully rejecting those who don't fit their own brand of Christianity. I mean, the hypocrisy is amazing, but never let that stop you. You keep going on in your thing, man, and talk about tolerance. Yeah, I get it. Tolerance for this half, but not the other half. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind stri striving side by side for the faith of the gospel the faith that has an article in front of it faith it means a body of truth that we are of one mind we agree on this body of truth that unites us as a church what that means is 
I can love my Buddhist friends. I can loan my lawn tools to my Islamic neighbors. This is good. You should do that. I can engage my atheistic family members. But I cannot have spiritual unity with people who are opposed to the gospel. That doesn't happen. When you deny the gospel, when you deny the word of God, you are not in the family of God, and you do not have spiritual unity with people who are not in the family of God. Now listen, let's make sure we're clear here. People who are not in the spiritual family are not your enemies. A lot of Christians act like that. You know, bullhorn on the corner, the partyings in hell, placards, you know, in downtown. All right. You sure get the feeling we're an, you know, people are an enemy. People don't have to be your enemy because they're not in the family of God, because you're not unified with him. Listen, there are estimates over three and a half billion women in the world, but I am only united to one. To be unified with one does not give me cause to hate the billions of others. I mean, why does it necessitate hating others because I'm united here? That doesn't even make sense. Unity is also very practical. I think if we were writing the historical account of the book of Acts, we might be tempted to put a period here for the chapter, move on to chapter 5, it would be a lot easier to read and to take in. But unfortunately, we can't do that, and this is what it says. So i got to deal with it, so here you go. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Wow. What is that? Well, first of all, their selling of the goods was voluntary, and the distribution was according to need. They freely shared their possessions with one another. This was not communism in practice. The sharing of their possessions was not mandatory. They saw them being a part of one big family. When my father was 15 years old, the family home burned down to the ground. My dad had to quit everything he was doing and start going to work to help support the family so that they could have another home. I mean, when it's family, you just do what you got to do. Not because that's the law, but because you love your family. Right? When I uh, went to school in Chicago, I went to a church that was called Jesus People. USA, and they were the Jesus people from the 70s who congregated in Chicago, and uh, Resurrection Band was the Sunday morning worship, hardcore rock and roll band for worship. The Holy Ghost Players was a dramatic group that they would do skits on Sunday morning, and we Moody students looked like a bunch of Mormons walking in with our suits as these guys had their tie-dyed shirts and jeans with holes in them 
you know, rock and worship, and uh, Keith Green was there once. I mean, it was a, it was a lively group, uh, much different than what I was experiencing at the Moody Bible Institute. But what they felt is that they all needed to live together in community, and they did. They all lived together in like the same commune, sharing stuff, everything. So it's like nobody had really a whole lot of personal property. They shared all that together. Now, that's one way to look at that, but I don't think that's necessarily what Acts is saying. Some people see it that way. I don't think that's by necessity how this operates. I don't think this negates personal property. But I think there are some principles in the background that would really help us to kind of set a stage for as we move further in this passage, and I'll, I'll deal more with it next week. If we can understand some of these principles, I think it will really help for, uh, us to understand how to deal with material possessions. Number one, God owns all we possess. God owns all we possess. First Chronicles 29, 14 says, For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. We don't own our possessions. We are trustees of the possessions that God gives to us. The psalmist says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. He made us. And we are his. I mean, I don't even own my own body. I am God's, right? We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are the people of God, and we are subject to him. He, therefore, has authority over us, including our material possessions. I mean, how do you view the stuff that gets sifted through your fingers? And not just money, but time, all of your possessions, your talents, for all things come from you. Is that our attitude? See, since God owns it all, since he has authority over its usage, then our possessions aren't just for us to consume, but they're for us to manage or to be a steward of. This word stewardship is used in Scripture. What we have then is a purpose for our stuff. We're to be managers of it. We look to God for direction, for instance, in, in how we save and, and how we invest and, and how we spend and how we handle our bills and how we give, right? I mean, consuming it all, listen, that's being a crummy steward, right? And that's exceedingly short-sighted. 78% of NFL players find themselves bankrupt or financially stressed within two years of retirement. And 60% of NBA players are broke within five years of walking off the court. 60% who are making bajillions of dollars. Managing what we possess is a God-given responsibility. Now listen, I come to this having experience kind of both ways. I mean, um, I look back with a great amount of shame in the early part of our married life of how I handled our money. All right, I was not a good steward. Later in life, much better, much more steward conscious. 
conscious about it. I can tell you there's no comparison to the two. All right? I like having my head hit the pillow at night, not having to worry about money. And it has nothing to do with the amount of money. It has everything to do with my heart. I mean, to give cheerfully and to not have this kind of nagging thing. Oh, crap, Sunday i got to give some more. I mean, no, that's not it. There's, uh, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-11. He talks about that um, to give cheerfully, to be enriched in every way with thanksgiving to God. That's a great way to approach it. And that's the experience. So it's a matter of how big your heart is, how obedient to God you are willing to be. There are over 2,300 biblical references about money and material possessions in the Bible. Do you know that? Almost half of all the parables deal with money. More is said in, New Test- in the New Testament about money than about heaven and hell combined. Five times more is said about money than, guess what, prayer. Obviously, the Bible has a lot to say. The Bible, you know, speaks to who you should give to. You know, the Bible even talks about who you should not give money to. It gives specific direction. It talks about not showing favoritism to those who have an abundance of material possessions and specific things that the Bible gives regarding how to handle possessions. So you're just filtering all of what you have and asking God, all right, what do you want me to do? What does your word have to say? And letting him be the Lord of your life in that area. And I think that's exactly what was going on here in Acts. These believers were stewards of what God had given them. The opposite of that is what you read in Luke chapter 12, where you read of the the rich fool. In it, we listen to how this man described himself, the rich fool. We pick it up in verse 13 of Luke 12. It says this. And he told them a, a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all of my grain. See a problem here? My goods. And I will say to my soul, I mean, how presumptuous when he talks about my soul. Souls, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? (laughs) So this is the one who lays up treasures for himself. And check out this last phrase, is not rich toward God. Not rich toward God. Rich toward self, but not toward God. He was not a steward of his time, treasure, and talent for the kingdom. So we are to steward the material possessions, handle material possessions for his pleasure. We look for his ultimate reward. It doesn't mean that we have to sell everything and move to the mission field. Now, some do that because God calls them to do that, but that's specific for them, right? It doesn't mean that I can't enjoy what God gives 
to me. But I realize ultimately what I have is for God's pleasure and not for my comfort. It's, I'm after, Lord, your pleasure, your reward. And all I have to enjoy, I do with great gratitude that it comes from your hand ultimately. And so I simply want to live under the lordship of Christ in my life, allowing his word to give me direction, allow his spirit to guide me as I handle my material possessions. And now listen, you know, I just know because I know the kind of spirit that was in me. There are plenty of us here, and guys, I'm I'm really going to talk to you. You have a hard time listening because you think you got it all down. You know, as you got 15, 20 grand in credit card debt, you think you got this thing down. I know about all that, blah, 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 blah. You're pig-headed and you're arrogant and you're con- going to continue on the downslide until you humble yourself and acknowledge you need some help. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Talk to somebody who's gotten themselves out of the hole, Right? Take a Dave Ramsey class. We offer that once or twice a year. I'm not going to allow my debt to get in the way of being generous to help others. I'm not allowing my generosity to be stolen from me by a a selfish heart and a small faith. I'm not allowing an idol of, of consumption to get me in incredible debt. Now listen, I think the temptation here is to look at other people. And we'll say, well, obviously that guy's not giving a lot or, you know, that, that person's just into consuming. Listen, one word of advice, just shut up. <laughs> it's none of our business how other people handle their money. That's between them and God. They're responsible to handle their money before God, right? And to each person is given their own level of responsibility, level of giving. That's between them and God. There's not some legalistic standard to apply here or even percentage, but having our hearts free to give sacrificially and liberally. Now, why would our hearts or a heart, like in Acts 4, give to God so freely, so generously, so unselfishly? There's only one explanation. And we're given it in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Normally, especially, you know, growing up in in Springfield, you know, uh, that's all I'm going to say. We normally think of miracles as a certain type of miracles, You know, supernatural power, healing, tongues, you know, fire from heaven. Nothing wrong with that. That's cool if God does that, all right? But that's not what took place here. And I want to submit to you, it's no less supernatural. In fact, it said that there was great power. And it was displayed when people gave their testimony about their interaction with the resurrection. You had apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and God used that in a powerful way, and it's like great grace was spread throughout. 
And what that says to you and me, that God uses our testimony, our interaction with how God has changed our life through Christ as we just share our story freely, openly, and some of you are afraid to do that. Some of you have not done that. You have had friendships. You've even had the in, as people talk about things that are important to him, but you shy away. Why? Because you don't, what? You don't want them to think that you're a holy roller. You don't want to turn them off, and all you're doing is just sharing your story. You know what I have found has been really important to me is this, and we shy away from it, but Here we see great power, great grace as they shared their testimony. When we encounter Christ, we encounter great grace and God is glorified. We too are witnesses. See, I believe there's no less power, no less grace than when we share today. And I think God wants to use his church in the same way. I mean, imagine the excitement as these Christians encountered the Messiah. All the hopes and wishes for centuries now being fulfilled in Jesus. Not all the Jews got it, obviously. But these did. And for the first time, they experienced the a permanent, unlike the Old Testament system that was temporary, you had to do the sacrifices every year, a permanent atonement for sin. They witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Can you imagine how that marked them? To see Jesus walking around after he was dead on a cross? That's amazing. I mean, do you really think after seeing their provision for sin being given through Christ, fully satisfying God's justice? Do you really think after the Holy Spirit filled them, after they received a new nature, they were recipients of a a new covenant, do you really think after experiencing all of this, they were really worried about their material possessions? That they were thinking, well, I don't want to give too much. You really think that entered their minds? Not these guys. Great grace had washed Over their soul. They weren't hanging on to possessions as the meaning of life. They weren't thinking, well, it's going to knock us down a couple pegs. See, the problem for many of us is we forget where we came from. We forget our sin problem. We forget how desperate we were without Christ and what the stakes are in that. And we take grace and God for granted. But boy, once you understand that, everything becomes crystal clear, right? That's why for many of us, it takes hitting rock bottom. I talked to a gentleman last evening, been in prison for a great number of years. Started telling me his story, was abused as a child, became entangled in a life of crime, was shot in the chest, Later on a separate incident, while he was holding his daughter, he was shot between the eyes. And the bullet lodged in his skull did not penetrate his brain. Don't ask me how that happened, but it happened. Obviously, he survived. And God put 
men in his life while he was in prison who shared the gospel, shared the grace of Christ. And after coming to realize God's grace that was given to him, I can tell you he was not concerned last night about the clothes he was wearing. He was not talking about how much bling he could have to get back out on the streets. No, instead, there was a steady stream of tears as he recounted of how unworthy he was of the grace of God in his life. Is it any different for you and me? Maybe you didn't have cocaine in your background, but I was still headed for hell. When a church focuses on its mission to proclaim the resurrection and how Christ has made a difference in life. My friends, all the material possessions in the world cannot hold a candle to what we have in Christ and his light. I mean, that's amazing. See, it's like with life in Christ, God has called us to partake of a banquet table of his grace. And it is our pleasure to bring others to come and take a taste of this and see what it's like to have life in Christ. Come and join us. Have this meal of grace. This is awesome. Why would we waste our time on licking up the crumbs? We wouldn't. Because the action is us being on mission sharing our story of how great Christ is, how great his grace is, how it was displayed in our lives, and how it can be displayed in other people's life. Listen, that's why your rumps are planted here on this earth. It's so we can invite other people to enjoy that grace. It's not about denomination. It's not about gathering who can be king of the hill and how much stuff I can gather. If God has blessed you with a lot, praise God, use it, enjoy it, appreciate your vacations, and give a whole bunch away for the kingdom of God so that God can use it. And so you can begin to multiply your blessing and be rich toward who? Be rich toward God. That's what these believers understood. And that's why they were rocking and rolling. And the question is, why doesn't the American church rock and roll like that? Because the American dream gets in the way. Because our hearts are easily swayed. Because we think we got to have that house, got to have that car. That 52 inch is not big enough. I need a 70 inch big screen, baby. If you have a 70, I'm not dogging you. I'm just saying. All right. You know how it works. It's, the point is, it's never enough. That's my point. It's just never enough. 